to redo the. There you go. Let's go on. So the teaser on the inside of the book says, ignoring the certainty of death doesn't protect us from feeling its effects throughout the lives we're living now. But this avoidance can hold us back from experiencing the powerful everyday relevance of Jesus' promises to us. So long as death remains remote and unreal, Jesus' promises will too. But honesty about death brings hope to life, and that's the ironic claim at the heart of this book, that cultivating a death awareness helps us bring the promises of Jesus from the hazy clouds of some other world into the everyday problems of our world where they belong. And it's not necessarily uh, an uplifting teaser for a book, but just by our avoidance of death doesn't make the idea of death uh, any less true. He says, death is a fundamental human experience that unites all humans across time and space, uh, race and class. And so why did he write this book? Well, he says the purpose of the book really is, is intended for an audience uh, like our age. He says it's to convince those that are living like immortals that they're not actually uh, immortal. But obviously to stop there wouldn't really capture the fullness of the gospel. It would come up short of, of the hope that we have. And so he says, uh, despite the title of the book, he says the ultimate purpose, he says this isn't really a book about death. It's a book about Jesus, and therefore it's a book about hope. And I think uh, one of my favorite quotes from the entire book, he really captures uh, these two dynamics. He says, when the reality of death is far from our minds, the promises of Jesus all, uh, often seem detached from our lives. And so this is how, that's the, his point. His point is to, to give us this death awareness because he believes that that then brings the promises of the gospel back into our lives. And this is kind of how he lays out the book and the path that he takes to get there. Uh, in the first chapter, uh, Where is Thy Sting, he talks about uh, how, as, as Americans in the 21st century, we've been able to avoid talking, thinking about death, and why we would want to do so, but at the same time, why, when we are Christians, why we shouldn't have to fear death. Uh, in the second, third, and fourth chapter, he then says that death is just bigger than the, the ultimate end of a life. He said it's, it, it affects us. Uh, almost every aspects of our life and so he talks about the problem of, of identity what death says about our identity the problem of futility uh, and then the problem of loss and he pairs that though he didn't leave you hanging he pairs that with a promise uh, of the gospel and why we can continue to have hope despite uh, all of these problems <coughs> he says uh, in the fifth chapter he talks about the problems of life and really he's trying to give us some practical uh, ways is uh, why remembering death can really uh, address problems that we have today. And then finally he wraps it up uh, to show us why, why as Christians we have hope uh, beyond uh, the face of death. I'm thankful to have my voice back. I didn't have any voice on Thursday, but it might be tough. So he says, before I get any <clears throat> deeper, I do want to make one disclaimer. And that is that the older I get, the, the more uh, years that I live, <clears throat> and as the naivety of my childhood kind of fades further into the past, one thing that I'm becoming increasingly aware of is that, that, that life is tough and it's hard and the problems that we face are real and significant and they weigh on us. And uh, I would almost be willing to bet my truck that everybody in this room that's sitting in a chair has a problem right now, a pain point that's really weighing on them and uh, on your minds at this moment and if you don't then you probably are in a relationship with somebody that, that, that does and there's a good chance for a handful of us if not all of us uh, in that same, some shape form or fashion that that uh, ties back to this idea of death uh, uh, fears of death in some uh, arena of death and so I do want to be up front this book 
Uh, if you can't tell, it's not necessarily uplifting at face value. I didn't smile much when I was reading it uh, for the first time. And so I do want to go ahead and ask for grace if I say something that seems insensitive to something that you're going through. And I also don't think that that's his purpose. His purpose isn't to address someone that's in the midst of despair. Um, and even though that person might need these truths more than the rest of us, uh, he's not really shrinking down your problems. He's not trying to tell you not to feel the pain. In fact, I think he would try to tell you <coughs> to feel that pain because then that pushes you on uh, to the promises of Christ. So I think his p ultimate purpose is to uh, reframe the paradigm of those that aren't dealing with death right now. I'm going to have to share some of the reading, I think. So what I've done is I've picked the um, just kind of a, a general excerpt out of each of the chapters to kind of give you a, a general flavor of what he's trying to get at. In chapter 1, he talks about the hows and whys of, of, of why we can avoid death, how we avoid death. And obviously one of the big reasons is, is that the blessing of uh, modern medicine has allowed us to live longer than we ever have before. And while that is a God-given gift, he says it comes with uh, unintended consequences. Kyle, can you read that? Yeah. All these medical marvels have come to us with a profound, often unnoticed side effect. The reality <coughs> of death has been pushed to the margins of our experience. Every one of us still dies, but many of us don't have to think much about it. And so one of the major reasons why we have been able to uh, avoid death is because it's been pushed further out uh, on our horizon because of the blessings of modern medicine. But again, it has these unattended consequences. That's the how of why we've been able to avoid death. But why would we uh, avoid death? And he could, there's a lot of reasons why we would uh, want to avoid death, <clears throat> but he chooses a couple to focus on. And I think he, uh, oops, and I think he is spot on uh, in doing that. And so I'll just touch on those. The first one is <clears throat> not as uh, obvious as the second, but he says we have this duty to happiness. He says, death doesn't sit well with our culture's obsession with happiness. And he includes this quote from Aries that says, it's as if we all have a social obligation to contribute to the collective happiness by avoiding any cause for sadness or boredom and by appearing to always be happy, even if in the depths of despair. And so I think Exhibit A in his case against this mindset would be uh, Instagram, social media. These are the last four posts from our social media accounts. And there's a lot of happiness here. And these were fun times, but this isn't real life all the time. If you'll notice on our Instagram feeds, there was no post yesterday. We had a tough day yesterday with kids disobeying. There was not much we wanted uh, to talk about. And I follow a lot of you on Instagram and know you're just as guilty. And so uh, we do, it's this subconscious idea that we have this obligation to contribute to uh, uh, society's happiness. Uh, I think the other reason is more obvious, and it's the fact that death is awful. Uh, it is evil, and it is not good. Uh, and because it is so ugly, we like to uh, avoid it. Eric, would you read those two? The reality is simply too horrible. Death cuts us off from everyone we love. It means the end to everything we enjoy about life. It is a head-on assault against our dignity and significance as human individuals. Death is an unshakable cloud for those living in a closed universe with no hope And so if life on this earth is all that there is, and then death is this unshakable cloud, and there really is no hope uh, beyond this earth, but for Christians 
who believe that uh, we're not living in a closed universe and that there is this power that has broken through and conquered death, then our view, uh, our view of death should be different. It's not that death is okay. It's not that death is something to be celebrated and we focus on what Paul says and he says to die is gain. To die is gain but also to live as Christ. And there's this balance uh, between the two. And so we have to remember that there's a, an appropriate view of death. And it's not simply to be flippant about it. We have to remember that Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept at death. And he says it like this. He says, we have no reason to hide from the truth about death and all its ugliness. If death is not a problem, Jesus won't be much of a solution. The more deeply we feel death's sting, the more consciously we will feel the gospel's healing power. The more carefully we number our days, the more joyfully we'll hear that death's days are numbered too. And the more we allow ourselves to grieve the separations death brings to our lives, the more fully we will long for the world in which he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. So this idea that, that uh, to want medicine, you have to know that you're sick. To want the healing, you have to know um, that you're you're hurt. And so <clears throat> how does death affect us? Outside of the obvious reasons, it's more than just um, an end of life. He says that death infiltrates um, uh, every aspect of our life, and he focuses on what he calls three dimensions of death. And the first one is, is what does death say uh, about our identity? He says death challenges our identity. He says the reality of death is profoundly humbling. It tells me that I'm not uh, indispensable. And then he quotes Ernest uh, Becker to kind of sum up this dilemma that we feel. He says, man is literally split in two. We have an awareness of our own splendid uniqueness and that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty. And yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order blindly and dumbly to rot uh, and disappear forever. So we know that we're special. We feel that we're unique. We stand out uh, among creation. In Genesis, we are the only creation that was called uh, very good. And so this uniqueness that we feel, this, this specialness, this, uh, the fact that we do stand out, it's not an illusion. That's how we were created to understand that life, human life, uh, is special. But then death challenges uh, that because it tells us that we aren't uh, indispensable. He says, for the Bible, this disconnect goes right to the heart of death's origin and purpose. He says, death is not the natural end to a merely biological life. But death is an intrusion into the perfect world of the Creator, designed by that same Creator to make a point. Death is a punishment for human pride. It exposes our foolish confidence and our freedom to be whoever we want to be. Death is a result of our sin, and our sin is the fact that uh, when you boil it down, we looked for an identity outside of the identity uh, that we were given uh, by God. I love the way that he captures uh, this idea. This may be one of my favorite passages from the whole book. He says, our dignity always is always and only what one theologian calls an alien identity. <clears throat> it covers us because it, God says so, but it's never fully ours. It belongs to God and it's applied to us. Death enters the human story as an intrusion, something fundamentally unnatural. It isn't the conclusion of a life cycle that's run its course. It's a punishment perfectly tailored to fit the crime of human sin. But ours is a created dignity. It's delivered, gifted dignity. It's the dignity of the moon catching the light of the sun, and it's never been enough for us. He said, perhaps you've heard of Aesop's fable, the dog who catches his reflection on the surface of the water. He already has an ice bone, but as soon as he sees what looks like another bone in the mouth of the dog in the water, what he has already isn't enough anymore. He grabs for the mirage only to lose his grip on the bone that he had. 
It's a helpful image for the way the Bible describes the origin of death. Every human who has ever lived would rather be the sun than reflect its light. We would rather be God than rest content in His image. But to assert your own identity rather than receive it from God is to lose ourselves altogether in death. So we feel unique and important because we are. But death shows that we aren't too important to die. And the Bible says that tension is the consequence of our pride and sin. Looking for our identity somewhere outside of the God-given image we were initially created. And I'm guilty as charged, right? Pridefully blazing my own trail, creating my my own identity. But then this is where the gospel comes in, encounters what uh, death says about us. If death says that we're uh, not too important to die, then what does the gospel say? The gospel says that you are far more loved than you've ever imagined. You're not too important to die, but you're important enough that God gave His only begotten Son so that if you believe in Him, you will not perish but have eternal life. You will not be defined by death. So the gospel gives this uh, this opportunity to regain that identity that we were initially created for. Paul talks about it in Second Corinthians. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, uh, and the new is here. And so, uh, if, if death challenges our identity, which is kind of the first dimension of death that he talks about, then what does it say about anything else that we try to do uh, on this earth? And he calls this the problem of futility, or the fact that outside of Christ, uh, everything is pointless. He says we must recognize that left to ourselves, everything is meaningless because everyone dies. Only then are we prepared to see how everything is meaningful because Jesus is alive. And so I think we often try to, to find fulfillment uh, in the things of this, this world. And the problem is that the, the good things, even the best things, um, even if we accomplish those, they're not going uh, to fulfill us. And even if we accomplish everything that we, we think we need, we're ultimately going to be left wanting more. He says, when you're young, it's easy to assume you're not happy because you haven't yet arrived. But the older you get, the more often you arrive and feel let down. The more you realize that what you thought you wanted isn't really what you need. And so for folks our age, I think we feel like uh, we're unfulfilled because we haven't worked long enough or we haven't earned enough money or we haven't had enough experiences. And I think what he's saying is uh, that's wrong. And so then he goes into... Uh, Ecclesiastes, man. The preacher in Ecclesiastes uh, it goes out and tests all these things that people think will bring them fulfillment. And I think the things that he tests are still relevant uh, today. And so work is a big one for me. I think a lot of times I try to find my identity in my work. And uh, I think for our age group, if you're in the workforce, I think that's probably true for most of us uh, as well. If we can just get that next promotion, if we can just get that next raise, if we can just accomplish this task or get into the corner office, maybe go work for that company or get this recognition, then maybe that'll be uh, what fulfills us. And even if you're not in the workforce, I think the principles still hold up. But the problem is that um, <clears throat> that next promotion we get, there's always one more step. That next raise you get, there's always more money uh, to be made. There's always uh, another grocery list to be bought. There's always another laundry list, uh, another uh, bag of laundry to be done. There's always another lawn to be cut. These, all these things are never finished. And so the word fulfillment has this connotation of finality. And so if you're trying to find your fulfillment in these things that are never finished, uh, you're never going to be fulfilled. And he uses the repetitiveness of nature to kind of capture this. He says, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. 
and it, hurry back, it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new uh, under the sun. And so I think his point is that work is obviously a futile uh, exercise if you're looking uh, for fulfillment. I think that that's something that we can all agree with. I think that there are a lot of days when I, I'm just waiting for the clock to hit that, that last minute so I can go home and do things where I think, uh, I'll find more enjoyment, things that are pleasurable, things that I uh, enjoy doing, and hopefully that will uh, be what gives me fulfillment. And uh, he would say that, that that's wrong too. He says, I denied uh, myself nothing my eyes desired. He said, I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. And chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure uh, accomplish? And so, uh, if it's not work and it's not pleasure, then maybe if we had more wealth and we could have more pleasures, then maybe that's uh, the trick too. And 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 the preacher says, look, I've had more than anybody else in Jerusalem, and yet. At the end of the day, I found out that it was all uh, vanity, and Ecclesiastes 5 shows why. Whoever lo loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on? And so the, the as goods increase, so do those who consume them. I missed it the first time, but he says the point of that is to say the more you get, your appetite grows alongside it. So you're never going to uh, be able to reach this appetite that always stays uh, ahead of what you had. And so I think the fact that, that work, pleasure, and wealth are all futile for fulfillment really uh, kind of captures what McCullough says. He says, death has an unmatched ability to expose the flimsiness of the things we believe give substance to our lives. It exposes the things that we make idols out of for what they really are, they're false gods, with no power to save. And so as, as depressing as this sounds, as depressing as Ecclesiastes is to read through, I think it sets up the context for the message of what the gospel has. We yearn for something that would make the things that we do on this earth purposeful and that it gives them uh, some reason, some, futile, some reason to not be futile beyond death. I think our tendency is to dismiss this stuff, to look at at what uh, Ecclesiastes and the preacher and Solomon say about all of these things and say, look, these were made null and void by the New Testament. If they weren't made null and void by the New Testament, then they surely aren't applicable to 21st century America. This guy on the left, uh, you may know, is T. Boone Pickens. And so maybe a name that you're familiar with, maybe not, but uh, if there is a, uh, a modern day example of the preacher from Ecclesiastes, I would say that he kind of fits the mold. And T. Boone passed away a couple of weeks ago. And so this guy has made uh, billions of dollars in the business industry. He's a household name in the oil industry. He has the capacity to go out and have whatever pleasure he could possibly want to have. And yet, with all of that, this is what he chose to put in uh, his final statement that he pre-wrote to be released uh, after his death. 
He says, in my final months, I came to the sad reality that my life really did have a fourth quarter and the clock really would run out on me. I took the time to convey some thoughts that reflect back on my rich and full life. One question I was asked time and again, what is it that you will leave behind? He said, and that's at the heart of one of my favorite poems called The Indispensable Man, written by Saxon White Kessinger in 1959. He said, here are a few stanzas that get to the heart of the matter. Sometime when you feel that you're going will leave an unfillable hole. Just follow these simple instructions and see how they humble your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to the wrist. Pull it out and the hole that's remaining is a measure of how you'll be missed. You can splash all you wish when you enter. You may stir up the water galore, but stop and you'll find that in no time it looks quite the same as before. And so I think the reason why Ecclesiastes is put in this group of books on wisdom in the Old Testament is because those words were wise uh, for Israel, and obviously they're still wise and relevant today uh, in 21st uh, century America. And so if everything is futile, if there's really no purpose to anything that we find or anything that we can do on side of this earth, then, then how can we find joy uh, in doing anything? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. And he has this similar message uh, as to uh, Ecclesiastes, but he goes one step forward and he gives the one reason, the one way where the things of this earth uh, aren't futile. Ethan, can you read that? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And really what Paul's saying is that's the only way that anything we do on this earth is not futile. And it's not that we have to go out and be missionaries. It's not that we all have to... Uh, preach those superb sermons like Eric preaches. It's not that you have to quit your private sector job and go out and do something in the mission field. It's just that it, we use our work and we use our wealth and we use our pleasure uh, to point others to Christ, to lead our kids to Christ, to um, <clears throat> give it away. Uh, you don't have to, you know, uh, serve others. If, if you look at how Jesus worked when he was on earth, he did it to serve uh, others. And so Christ gives purposes to the tasks that we do, but the promise of eternal life, he also uh, gives the only solution to our, our, our problem of loss. And so this is the second dimension of death, uh, where he says that death infiltrates our life on this earth. And he says, how do you live well in a world where nothing lasts and nothing returns? He calls this the problem of impermanence and irreversibility, the fact that things always go away and there's nothing that we can do about it, essentially. He said, loss isn't surprising. It's a basic to the course of every life. Living with the expectation of loss isn't morbid or dangerous. It's simply realistic. But it can be a crushing burden to carry. Once we've learned to recognize the inevitability of loss, we're forced to confront crucial questions. How can we learn to live well, to enjoy the good things of this world, if we know that everyone loses everything they love? How do, they, how do we live when we know that the more we love these things, the more it will hurt uh, to lose them. And so then he ties two passages together. 
one from the Old Testament, uh, one from the, two, the, the New Testament, to really answer these questions and highlight the only way that you can love the things that are going to be taken away from you and, and to do it in a meaningful way. In Isaiah 25, he says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And then in John 2, he says, When the wine was gone, this is when Jesus was doing his first sign at the wedding. He says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And so the point that he makes by drawing these two um, correlations is he said, This was uh, Jesus' first sign, and by turning the water into wine, at this wedding, it gives you kind of a window into, an insight into what Jesus' real mission was uh, on this earth. What did he do? He came to this party uh, that was ending too soon, and by his power, he brought it back to life at the wedding. And so he says the same thing for our lives. Death comes into our life via sin, and it takes this creation that was meant to last in perpetuity, and it ended too soon. And so the message of the gospel is that through the power of Jesus, we have an opportunity to have our life, um, uh, <clears throat> have our life brought back to life after death. And so that promise that Jesus offers of eternal life is really the only thing uh, that can give us true and lasting joy. And so he says it like this. He says, Jesus' death and resurrection, the promise that he will give life to us too if we believe him, reframe how we experience the transient things of this life. The way to fully taste the sweetness of eternal life is not to pull back from enjoying the good things of life, but to leverage these good and passing pleasures into longing for the endless feast to come. Loving this life and all its goodness, knowing the truth, knowing with truth and honesty that we're going to lose everything can actually deepen our love for the life uh, to come. And so he ends the chapter with this passage that really summarizes kind of this promise of eternal life and how it's the solution to our problem for loss. He says, Jesus' death and resurrection have purchased freedom to enjoy what you have even when you know you're going to lose it. Enjoy your vacation even though you know it'll be over in flash. Enjoy parenting your preschoolers even though, even though they'll be grown in the blink of an eye. Enjoy your friendships. Enjoy your marriage. Enjoy your productivity at work. Enjoy whatever health you have left in your body. Of course, these things won't last. And yes, it'll hurt when they're gone, but they don't have to last to be wonderful. They're delicious, God-given, God-glorifying appetizers for the hearty and satisfying meal that's still to come. They are true and worthy foretaste of the banquet spread for all peoples. And Jesus saved the best wine for last. So that, that correlation, again, from Isaiah 25 and John uh, 2 that the promise of the gospel is that these things that we experience on this earth are simply a taste of what to come and Jesus always uh, saved the best for last. And so I think to some degree these are things that we understand intellectually, conceptually, and, but I think they're harder to kind of live out, push down into our heart and really put uh, into practice. And I think one of the reasons why that is is because we have a lot of problems today. And so it's hard to think about eternity and the promise of uh, perfection years from now when we have so many things that are weighing on us 
today. And so he addresses how you practically take this stuff that we know in our head and apply it to your real life. And there are really three problems he hones in on, but I think they capture uh, the essence of any other problem uh, that we might have. And discontentment is the first one. I think this may be one of the top problems that we have today. Of all people to ever live on the face of this earth, we have more options to satisfy ourselves than any generation before, and yet we're less uh, happy. Uh, Martha, you mind reading this? Yeah, please. So I think the, the, the point he's trying to make is that we think our circumstances change the message of the cross and, and uh, counter God's character when in fact it actually confirms the need for the cross and, and confirms that God's character uh, is good. And again, this idea that things are perishable can't really give us true contentment. We've already seen why uh, envy is futile. Why envy is useless because obviously the things that that of this world will never fulfill us. We talked about that in preacher. He had everything. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, he had everything that you could possibly have on this earth. He was the person to be envied. He had nobody to envy, and yet he said that it was all vanity, uh, and there was nothing to be gained uh, under the sun. And then this last one that he uses is really uh, maybe one uh, of the ones that I struggle with the most, and that's worry uh, and anxiety and. and uh, the fact that uh, we, we lose sight of today because we're so worried about tomorrow. And he says, worry is always directed at tomorrow. We bring the future and its uncertainties into our experience uh, of the present. Death puts our misplaced insecurities in perspective. It warns us against living as if the future were ambiguous, as if we might be able to love transient things and not lose them. And in that sense, it prepares us to care more deeply about another certain hope beyond uh, the transients uh, of this life. And so he says, maybe... Uh, we uh, worry because we look into the future, but maybe we worry because we don't look far enough into the future, past the transience uh, of this life. And so, I, as I said in my disclaimer, he's not trying to shrink down our problems. Our problems are real, and they hurt, and they are painful, and it's not how it was meant to be. But I don't think he's, he, he's not telling you not to feel those. He's telling you to feel them, lean into them, acknowledge them, magnify them because when you do that then it points you back uh, to the promises uh, of Christ. Paul says therefore we do not lose heart though outwardly we are wasting away yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen uh, is eternal. And so uh, many of you know Grant and Jessica Dasher, who were members here uh, before uh, they moved. And many of you know that Grant's uh, mom has battled dementia for several years now. It's completely destroyed uh, her mind and body. And you may or may not have heard that, that uh, she passed away on Wednesday, and they're actually having the services today. 
in uh, West Monroe, Louisiana, and I was getting as I was getting ready for this, I couldn't help but think about uh, this passage that Grant's dad wrote months ago that Grant sent me, and I think it really captures succinctly and sufficiently the point in this entire book, and uh, really then serves as a great transition into the final chapter of this book about how as Christians, how do we grieve um, uh, death and all the ugliest ugliness how do we grieve that uh, in hope and so I asked Grant if I could include it and so I'll read what his dad wrote about Jan he said <clears throat> for as long as I've known Jan she's longed to be with her father to be face to face with her creator and I pray with tears in my eyes as I write this that the desires of her heart are fulfilled soon very soon and to be honest with you the more life disappoint me disappoints me the more I realize that I wasn't made for this kind of life either at the very best, it's fraught with disappointment and travail. He says, I'm not morbid, I'm realistic, and I'm being biblical. While we are created for a perfect life, sin has done its best to destroy that hope, and has done a wonderful job. Life is a mess. It's hard. The only thing that keeps most people going is the illusion that it will get better. But it won't, not really. In the end, we all die. I want reality, though. I don't want illusions and delusions. If stretching out a few more days on this planet is all there is, then it's hopeless. I'm not searching for pity. Please pray for us, but do not pity us. The truth is that if you have no hope beyond your last breath, then you are the one that is to be pitied. The good news is that you can have the same kind of secure hope that Jan has. Admit that life is brief and by itself has no real meaning. You live and then you die. Do me a favor. Go read 1 Corinthians and admit that you are powerless. Surrender your life to the one who died for you and live out the rest of your days praising him. Live for the day when you will mock uh, all human suffering. So it's not that we don't feel the hurt or the pain of this life that we're inevitably going to face. You may not be in a storm now, but you will be. The claim of this book, though, is that we should actually pay closer attention to those because then we yearn for something where there is no more pain. Be honest about how much hurt there is. Grieve when you're hurt. Grieve with others when they're hurt, but don't stop in grief. Grief is supposed to point you to hope. He says, honesty about death is merely the first step. Honesty should lead us on to grief, and grief should lead us on to hope. So Grant's dad went on. He said, but do you want to know why I'm not in despair? Do you want to know why I don't give up? He said, it's simple, really. First of all, a holy and perfect God who also happens to be good in ways I will never fully comprehend has planted a seed in me that longs for so much more than I can experience in this realm. The ultimate reality, eternal peace in the presence of my Father, I want that. And God gives me little glimpses of it here in this life so that I will long for it and live for it. That promise of redemption, of resurrection, when all things will be made new, will be made permanently perfect. It energizes me to endure with joyful expectation. McCullough uses uh, the story of Lazarus' uh, death and resurrection as kind of the model for how we should grieve and hope and how that should play out in our lives um, John uh, 11, uh, Bill, would you read that? Sure. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love. When he heard this, Jesus said, Sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die by choosing to delay his visit after the news of Lazarus' illness. Jesus even made sure he would die. 
And Jesus knew exactly what he was about to do. He knew he would speak a word and bring this body back to life. He's in a complete control of the situation from beginning to end, but he's not callous. He's not detached from the pain of those he loves. He doesn't scold anyone for weeping. He joins them. The reality of death, its effect on those he loves, broke his heart. Grief over death and all its many faces is the only honest, truthful response to a world that was not made to be destroyed. <clears throat> Thank you. I love what he says about that. We shouldn't be ashamed to grieve death. He said we should grieve death. That's, it's almost, it's even Christ-like uh, to grieve death. But Christians don't stop at grief. He describes it as saying, Christians, for Christians, grief isn't a terminal condition. It's a transitional one. It's a necessary pathway to Jesus, a valuable means uh, to a blessed end. He speculates that Jesus decided to wait, like it said in verse 5 and 6, because we needed to see that our death uh, could be defeated. He said when he heard Lazarus was sick, he did uh, nothing. And then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake... I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Why is he glad that it happened? So that you may believe. Because he loves them, he allows death to run its awful course. Because he loved them, he wants them to believe. So his love for us is not to protect us from all the pain that this world has to offer. Because he loves us, he wants us to believe. And what's best for them is that he believed. And so he allowed Lazarus to die so that he could see, they could see Lazarus uh, to be brought back uh, to life. And so I'll just wrap up and then maybe we'll have a few, uh, a few moments to kind of fellowship before we have to go get the kids, maybe. So I'll just give you some context as to why uh, this book was special to me. First was I really needed it. And just from the simple, the simple point that uh, my paradigm was all out of whack. I was living day to day for uh, what could I accomplish for myself? What could I achieve? How could I control this and control that so that all pain is avoided? How can I make my family's life on this earth um, as comfortable and a a as fun as it possibly has? And what we've just shown is that that's all futile. And so from the basic reason, I really needed it just so my paradigm was kind of reset and recalibrated. I think the other reason why it was so meaningful is because where it landed uh, on um, kind of in the timeline of our lives. And so tears, two years ago or so, I clicked on this article on Twitter from the Gospel Coalition. It was titled, 20 Quotes from a, uh, from a Profound New Book on Death. And so I don't know why I clicked on it. I wasn't dealing with death. wasn't thinking about death. But as I read through it, uh, this one quote, that first one that I started with about when the reality of death is far from our minds, the promises of Jesus often seem detached from our lives. It really stuck with me and it kind of lingered for the next two years and I wasn't sure why. Well, fast forward two years. In early May, we found out that our third child uh, had some genetic, genetic abnormalities that were going to make her life on this earth short and it was going to make uh, her life on this earth <coughs> tough. And um, so <laughs> I started to kind of see, well, maybe this is why I clicked on that article today. On June 2nd, Chris preached a sermon called The Blessings of Belly. So this is Sunday, June the 2nd. Chris preached this sermon. And he used the story of Jonah to show how Christians should view the hard times in life, the belly situations of life. And, and there's one thing that I remember explicitly about that sermon. We're sitting there in our seats and... Chris talked about the nuances of the word belly. 
And so the word belly is used twice in Jonah 2, and the first time it's used, it's used in a masculine gender. And so essentially when it's used in the masculine gender, it's a reference to Sheol or this place of death. So basically what he's saying is that these bellies of life are these places of death. And then he uses it immediately again, but when he uses it again, it changes gender. And so now instead of the masculine gender, it's used in the feminine gender. And when it switches gender, the insinuation of the word, the, the reference of the word is not uh, a place of death anymore, but it's a place of birth and renewal. And Chris said maybe it was because we were meant to think of this tight and restricted space, not simply as a place of suffering and misery, but also as a place of rebirth. This is not just a belly, it's also a womb. This tight and constricted space where freedom has been denied, <coughs> where suffering happens is also a place of renewal, <coughs> renewal and rebirth. And I did a lot better job fighting my tears back then than I did today. So it's Sunday, June the 2nd. So he talks about this sermon about how these bellies of life can be these places of death, but also these places of renewal. And then Brescian did something that he's, he's never done before. He just simply stood up. He didn't sing. He didn't dance. He didn't ad-lib his way out of the sermon. But he read this passage, and he read it uh, as a prayer. And then he dismissed us. And so I went up afterwards, and I took a, a picture of my phone. This is what he said. Lord, every circumstance is an unwritten song of worship. Whether my suffering is the result of my rebellion or a trial of my faith, let my tongue be the pen of a skillful writer and my heart the quiet chamber where faith turns adversity into praise. Make my voice clear in proclaiming your great faithfulness and love. As I turn my heart from worthless idols to your matchless grace, please lift me from death to life that I may joyfully serve you and glorify your holy name. And so our car was completely quiet. <clears throat> on the way home. So that was Sunday. On Monday, Grant texted me the link to that post that his dad wrote. So that was Sunday. That was Monday. On Tuesday, this book was delivered to my front door, this Remember Death book. And then on Wednesday, we woke up and Martha was having some problems. And so we went in uh, to the doctor so they could check on the baby's heart and stop beating. So now looking back at that, in hindsight, it's, it's as if God was saying, I knew that you needed to know that, that I was holding you. And so they, they sent us to the hospital and we're sitting there waiting in this room for Martha to go into surgery. And I was sitting there looking at her and knowing that death, and if you already heard this in communion, which I've done before, I apologize, but I was sitting there looking at her and realizing that death had uh, was literally in our presence. We're in this place, we're in this room that's built for life and death has infiltrated this room and I look over just a few feet from our bed and because that morning was complete chaos they hadn't had term, time to take all of the labor and delivery stuff out of the labor and delivery room and so the infant warming bed is still sitting there with the lights on so you have death here you have this place that's ready to welcome a new life into the world and it was like the imagery was too much for me at that moment so I kind of like looked away so I wouldn't lose my composure and when I did my eyes landed on this little cross up on the wall and it hit me that as Christians, the message of the cross is that we have a Savior that is the answer to death. And I just kind of stood there and was trying to take it all in. But they, I asked them if we could have that cross. And so they told us we did. And so now it hangs next to uh, pictures of our other two kids in our house. And, and we did it so that we would remember her life. 
and that we would remember her her death and how that day that we felt God's presence like we never have before and that we don't hope in this world but we hope uh, in a world to come and so when people ask us what our long-term prayer is how they can pray for us through this situation our long-term prayer is essentially what the the message of that cross is the point of hanging that cross up it's that we remember uh, her death and so that's why obviously the book based on this title uh, is meaningful for me so that's all i got Good. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Close the stand. i appreciate the deadly sharing that